0: Hey, Randy. Bad news, I'm afraid. There are so many podcast interviewers around that your pay is going down. What?
1: But the demand for content on product management is skyrocketing right now. People want new insights every week. It's, it's madness. <laughs> okay, okay, I suppose so.
0: Let me just tweak the algorithm and I'll give you a bit of a boost again. Thank you. <laughs> and in case anyone didn't catch on, This week, we are talking about pricing and specifically pricing that changes in response to the market.
1: Yeah, thank you. That makes more sense. So, this week, we're chatting to Vishal Kapoor. He's a director of product at Shipped, and he's filling us in on how and why Shipped changed their pricing strategy. It's a very dynamic chat. See what I did there.
0: The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more.
1: Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content, discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. And there's probably one near you.
0: Hi, Michelle. So nice to have you on the podcast with us today.
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Lily and Randy. Nice to meet you.
0: (laughs) So today we're going to be talking a little bit about pricing and a very particular type of pricing. But before we get into that, it'd be great if you could give us a real quick intro into who you are and how you got into product and what you're doing
2: today. Uh, Sure thing. So my name is Vishal, Uh, I am a director of product at a company called Shipt, S-H-I-P-T. This is a delivery marketplace similar to, you may have heard of Instacart or DoorDash or Uber Eats. It's a delivery marketplace similar to them. And it is the largest acquisition of uh, Target.com in their history. So this is a marketplace that operates in North America, essentially. And we do deliveries, the use cases that we support are shopping and delivering an order for a a grocery order, as well as a pickup and delivery order. So, for example, if you wanted, you know, a computer delivered or some electronic item delivered, we have partnerships with places like Best Buy and, uh, you know, all these electronic providers, for example, different electronic providers, Best Buy, Home Depot, etc. We also have partnerships with chains like Costco and Safeway and Whole Foods and, and these other places where you can go and do deliver groceries. Uh, the marketplace itself is divided into three sides. So there is a customer that places the order. There is the store where the order is, where the inventory is and the order is uh, shopped from. And then there is the gig side. It is a gig-based company like the others where the shoppers are going and fulfilling, actually doing the shopping and doing the fulfillment of the order. So they would go and shop at the store and then go and do the delivery so i am on that side on the gig side and a couple of big products that i own one of them is our equivalent of uber pool or shared rides. so in the uber world if you were going from point a to point b uber could actually pull multiple drivers different riders into the same car together similarly we have a product called bundling where if a shopper is going from a store to deliver one order to a customer we could Give them multiple orders, which need to be delivered around the same time in the same vicinity, potentially at the same store, maybe at the stores nearby and so on. So we uh, improve our unit economics through economies of scale. So that's one. And the other one, which is more relevant to the topic that we're going to talk about today, is uh, I, I and my teams own all of the earnings or all of the pay that goes into the pockets of the shoppers who... When they finish a job for us, anything that they get paid after they decide to come and work for us is something that my teams own. Uh, just to give you a sense of impact between the two products I talked about, it's every year we, our PL surface area is about a billion dollars between 2021 and, and 2022. We spent about a billion dollars to the shopper. So, you know, it's a lot of, lot of uh, power, a lot of responsibility to quote Spider-Man. I, I love that quote. Uh, <laughs> and uh you know, so it's it's a lot of a lot of uh, science and art, and you know, a lot of uh, uh, thoughtfulness that goes into building and launching the things that we do. Which is one of the reasons why I love talking about this topic. I I appreciate the opportunity to do the <laughs> podcast. Very quickly before this, I was at Lyft, which is another which is number two competitor to Uber, and I was also working on dynamic pricing, surge pricing type of problems at Lyft. Before that, I was a PM for a gaming company. They have we have a game here called Words with Friends. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. You play Scrabble with other people. It's a mobile app. So I started my PM journey there. Before that, I was an engineer and an engineering manager. I used to write back in my older in my older job, I used to write code for search engines like Bing is very popular nowadays. So Bing, Yahoo search. And I started my journey with Amazon.com. So that's a little bit about me.
0: Thanks, Michelle. That's awesome. I've actually used words with friends, so <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah,
2: that's that's awesome to hear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you mentioned there about the uh, the kind of the the dynamic pricing projects that you've worked on or pro- products that you've worked on. Right. Tell us a bit about what dynamic pricing is.
2: Sure. So, price variation is essentially a simple concept. If you think about it changing prices has you know existed since the beginning of time and the beginning of money essentially I think one way to simplify and simplistically think about the problem is think about somebody charging a premium for something that you that somebody wants urgently so you know let's say that you place an order on amazon.com and you want the order instead of being delivered next week you want it delivered earlier than that or you know you you're shipping something to somebody else. And then, you know, you want some more immediate delivery or instant delivery, for example. So that happens. So in in the cases where there is an urgency, where somebody is looking for a premium service, prices, uh, the companies will charge you higher prices. So that is one form of dynamic pricing. Another example that I like to give is your happy hours, right? When you go to bars, when you go to, you know, restaurants, there are times of the day, periods in the day where they want to discount so that they want to move their inventory. So they are essentially lowering the price. So one example is where the prices are raised. One example is where the prices are lowered. You do that, when you do that, taking into account market dynamics, which is you're taking into account things in real time. The true meaning of dynamic pricing is you're actually aware of your supply, your demand, your inventory. These are the three variables usually uh, in real time. And you're adjusting prices to Kind of balance everything in the marketplace, so that's what dynamic pricing is. Uh, has existed since since the beginning of time, though.
0: And it, typically, is it um, something that's uh, displayed to the to the end user, so they're aware of the fact that this pricing is changing?
2: Yes. Uh, it it depends on yes. The short answer is yes, but it also depends on who the user is. So, for example, the you know just to give you an idea of how it works in marketplaces or you know take, taking taking us back to foundations to the to the fundamentals if you think of how uh, an economic system works how economics economics 101 how it works is imagine that you have a bunch of suppliers people who are giving a product and you have you know you you have a, a lever as a company that you can change prices so suppliers are probably going to come more and more back to you if you raise prices right because they are going to make more money that's obvious imagine on the now put your other hat on where you are a customer and you are on the demand side now if the price is very high you're probably not in the game depending on what what that item is but as the prices start to decrease more and more people will come into the marketplace right and they are they are they want to purchase at a lower and lower price just generally speaking so if you try to plot this if you think of this and in your mind you make sort of an xy plot you will basically, and you know, the price is your let's say x-axis where it is increasing as you go out, and then your uh, units of supply or demand are increasing as you go up. Let's say that's the y-axis. You will then realize if you plot the demand, you will realize that the demand basically starts very high when the price is zero, and then it slopes down, right? Because as the price increases, demand decreases. Supply is the other way around, which is supply starts at zero when you're not willing to pay anything. Nobody's going to really come and work for you or give you something. But as price increases that line goes up so it forms an x in your mind if you if you imagine that and the point where they meet the the two meet is is in the in the in a very simplistic scenario in economics it's called the equilibrium point which is when your supply and demand are really equal and are balanced which means that that is a price point where people are willing to come and sell product into your marketplace or provide a service into your marketplace as well as on the other side, customers are willing to buy that product at that price point as well. So that's called the equilibrium point. Anything above or below, you are really in a disequilibrium. So there are situations where you have more supply uh, than demand, meaning there are a lot of, in let's say in the case of Uber, for example, a lot of drivers, but there is no rides. So they're just idling out, right? So that, we call that as oversupply. And then there is a converse situation where you have a lot of demand, but there is nobody to come and serve it because there aren't enough there isn't enough supply and we call that undersupply. And undersupply is one of the scenarios where, to coming back to what you just mentioned, Lily, is a is a problem where it becomes very severe, which is a problem where you start you start premium pricing, which is a problem where you start something called surge pricing. So surge pricing is a is a part of dynamic pricing, is a technique uh, of dynamic pricing, which uses market dynamics, this supply-demand curves that I was talking about into account. But then you vary prices uh, depending on how do you want to manage and restore the equilibrium back to the marketplace. So what happens typically, just one more level deep, is when you surge your demand. Imagine yourself as a customer, the prices are very high. So a lot of us, let's say if all three of us were in, you know, looking for an Uber ride right now, and the prices were very high. Maybe I wasn't willing to take it at that high price. Maybe I drop out. Maybe Randy isn't, he drops out, but maybe you are. So you are the one who Who gets that ride at a higher price and on the other side the way these platforms work including shift by the way you can translate that into our marketplace as well on the other side what happens is that higher prices are also shown to to answer your question are directly shown to the people who are coming and doing the fulfillment meaning the shoppers or the drivers so as a shopper or a driver i have a higher incentive because i'm making more money than usual to come and actually work versus on the demand side it helps Tamped down the demand a little bit because the prices are high. So it it's used as a lever on both sides. The prices are shown on both sides. That's how it. That's
1: how it's done. You make it sound really simple to apply, as in you you know just feed in lots of uh, lots of data and calculate the equilibrium point, and bang, it's easy. And I'm guessing, I mean, there's going to be market conditions where it doesn't make sense. You've got to have critical mass and things like that. So before we talk about your decision of uh, of implementing dynamic pricing at shipped. And just a more yeah. general question, How, when is it right to start thinking about putting dynamic pricing in? I mean, you're not going to do it when you first get to market before you have any traction, I'm, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yes, you need a certain critical mass to be able to price dynamically. And I do think that pricing generally, in general, without talking about a specific strategy of pricing, Pricing in general, and the way we think about this at the company as well is it's usually a non-reversible door. You know, if you update your pricing model, if you go from, let's say, you know, a one-time purchase price, right? Like, you know, Microsoft used to do, for example, sell Microsoft Word or Office Suite, which you you installed on your computer. If you go from that to like a cloud subscription, it's a very different pricing model, right? Subscriptions are very different from, you know, uh, uh, upfront payment, for example. So these strategies are usually non-reversible. So you need to be thoughtful about how are you actually, are you at a, as a marketplace or are you as a company at a point where you can, you are even mature enough to do dynamic pricing. So I think you're exactly right in that. Uh, how do you actually get there? So I think what happens is that there are a bunch of different strategies. And usually what happens is that the way it progresses is usually what happens is that uh, companies will start with, something called cost of manufacturing, right? So if you're a small company, let's let's you know paint this picture out. You're a small company, you make some goods, you sell them. It does take some uh, money for, for you to actually produce those goods into the marketplace, to make those goods and sell them. So there is a cost of manufacturing, there is a cost of sales, there is a cost of marketing. And if you are a small company, all you want to do, need to do right now is break even. So, you know, you calculate all your costs and you say, I'm just going to, Slap a margin on top, and I'm just gonna you know uh you know just just gonna you know sell my product at that at that price point. That's fine. The other way that people do sometimes is so that's sort of almost how companies start. That's almost sort of the one one of how companies start pricing. they assess their own cost and you know do a margin margin on top. The next level then is now let's say you grew a little bit and now you feel like you are a competitor and you have you know other competitors competitors in the marketplace. At that point, you're going to start benchmarking yourself versus what other people are paying. So that form is called competitive pricing, meaning if Uber rides are a certain at a certain point, for example, a certain price point, uh, ignoring dynamic pricing. But if Uber rides were priced at a certain price point, maybe the Lyft rides have to be priced competitively to them because otherwise the demand will potentially, if, if Lyft is a lot more expensive than Uber, probably a lot of your market, a lot of your riders, a lot of your demand is going to shift into... That competitor versus you. So at some point when you grow, when you're big enough, you have to start benchmarking competition. Then I think the next thing that comes up is something called value-based pricing, which is again in economics the concept is called what is somebody's willingness to pay or willingness to sell, which is at what this this at this point we are talking about personalizing personalizing the prices. So Lily, your willingness to pay might be high. Like we took that example before when the prices are dynamic, your willingness to pay that price might be higher than Maya and Randy's because of whatever reason, right? At that point, you feel like, you know, you want to, you are willing to pay a higher price. So that personalization, uh, sometimes down to the user, sometimes maybe at a level of a market, at an entire market. For example, San Francisco, Francisco prices might be higher than, for example, you know, I, Boise, Idaho prices in, in the US because it's a smaller town. So that that kind of competitive pricing. So that is the, So that kind of value-based pricing, that's sort of the third level that happens. And then finally, when all of these things are implemented, then you come to this real-time market dynamics, what's happening in the market right now, you have developed enough critical mass of demand, of supply, of enough rides coming in, uh, you know, enough drivers, enough riders, and taking Uber as an example, uh, that you actually can start changing the prices in real time, or you look to start changing the prices in real time. So you're right. So it's a it's a sort of a layered strategy. You usually start from a very simple strategy, which is what does it take for me to make this? I'm just going to, you know, break even or, or or cost a little bit more. From there, you slowly advance into dynamic pricing or such.
1: Now, are there times when you shouldn't use this? I mean, I'm guessing monopoly or monopsony situations, it might be even illegal to, to use it at times.
2: Uh is it illegal to use surge pricing? At the end of the day, the companies, I'm not sure if there are laws that prevent uh, you from from doing surge pricing. I'm I'm not sure if there is, at least not to my knowledge. And I've been in the gig industry for a while. uh, So I will say that there isn't a legal precedent or there isn't a legal, uh, you know, checks and balance for this. What does happen is that sometimes these algorithms can cause sticker shock. Uh, So one data point, for example, is it all sounds hunky-dory, right? Like, you know, you're charging higher and, you know, all of that. There was a data point from 2015. I saw a study from Uber where when the prices surged, only 10% of their demand was actually booking rides at that price. Actually, less than 10% was booking at that price. So guess what, right? You are not going to be able to make up, all of your revenue, 100% of of your revenue through 10% of that demand. It's not going to happen, right? If it's a $100 ride and let's say if it is a $100 ride and there are 100 people who see a $100 ride and only 10 of them are going to book it, like you are not going to now, 100 into 100 is $10,000. You're not going to be able to make those $10,000 from those 10 people only. Like you're not going to do that. You're not going to raise the cost of every ride to $1,000. You're not going to search price to that. So there is a sticker shock and I think the long-term uh, impact on the marketplace is that it it does create churn. It does create problems of people coming back. It does create a trust issue. So that's why companies, uh, you know, in their own interest, in their own experience, they actually have surge caps or caps to how much pr- how much high the pricing goes. On our on our side, you know, sometimes sometimes there are also situations where you have reverse options, where for example, you know, the lowest bidder wins. In that case, they have floors because they don't want something to go down to zero and cause a race to the bottom. So this this is sort of like a forward a forward incrementing price. Search price goes up, but there can also be reverse prices, for example. So things like that. So there aren't any laws. It's a free market. It's a free economy. Uh, there aren't any laws go- trying to govern how the economy should behave. But I think the organics and the and the human behavior, right? The way humans behave, that sort of how it dictates the business and how it works. Anyway. So that's a big part of it.
1: Are you ready for Mind the Product San Francisco conference happening in June?
0: If you've been before, you're probably feeling a bit like me, desperate for your MTPcon fix. And if you're new to it, this is the product conference not to miss. If you're a product person looking to advance your career, expand your network, get inspired and bring the best products to market, then this
1: is for you. So what can you expect? Well, MTPCon is known for their epic lineup of speakers, renowned product leaders with invaluable insights and tactics to share. They cover a range of exciting topics that will challenge and inspire you to step up as a product manager, always with something tangible to take away into your own product practice.
0: And don't let location hold you back. Even if you can't join in person in San Francisco, you can still be part of the action with their convenient digital-only option.
1: This event is a must-attend for anyone seeking to elevate their product management game. Find out more and book your ticket at mindtheproduct.com slash sam francisco.
0: And and you make a really good point there, Vishal, around, I guess, sort of working out the financial viability of switching right. to dynamic pricing so just kind of moving on to um, to how you did this at shipped and and how you worked out what that that kind of dynamic pricing strategy looked like was there a, a period at the beginning of this where you had to try and work with the the CFO or, or like one of the the sort of finance team to model out what that dynamic pricing would look like and how it would impact then uh the revenue c- coming into the business
2: yeah i think the obvious answer is yes <laughs> uh, you know we wouldn't we wouldn't we wouldn't just roll out a pricing model as i said all of these are different pricing strategies we wouldn't just switch a pricing strategy because it really just drives your entire p l and you know the surface area of a billion dollars usual ju- you just don't do that without no. <laughs> you know th- thinking really hard about it but i will give you an example of where where ship was before and, and after and this was uh, a little bit before my time before i joined the company just before i joined the company in fact uh, in 2020 early 2020 and i joined in march so what ship was doing until that point was what we called a commission based model which is not very different from the you know the the markup based pricing that i was talking about the cost of manufacturing pricing but we are, we are a little bit different because we are a services platform, right? It's a gig, gig company. And we, ourselves, do not uh, manufacture inventory. We don't hold inventory. We move inventory, right? Because other people, we are an aggregator platform. We are a marketplace. We are not manufacturing anything. We are actually helping aggregate all the demand and all the supply into one place and helping move inventory, essentially. So it's a little bit trickier like that. But the way we worked, the way our cost of manufacturing equation worked, before we move to dynamic pricing was uh, the way it works at SHIFT, just to give you guys a quick background is as a shopper, let's let's take the supply side here for a a second. Let's talk about pricing on the supply side. So let's say if we three are shoppers and we come to SHIFT or Instacart or DoorDash, you know, take your pick or Uber Eats or any one of them. What happens is that you see as a shopper or a driver, you will see a list of options that are available in your area for you to be able to finish right so at in the ship tab there is a separate shipped customer app we call that member so ship member app and then there is a sh- separate shipped shopper app which is for the gig site so on the ship shopper app once you sign up if you log into the app you'll see a list of different options that are available to you to be able to shop and deliver and then for each of those options that you see we call them offers for every offer that you see you also see a price that you will see. So it's called upfront pricing, which is you will see a price of what you will get if you take that order, take that offer, and you deliver that offer. So far, so good, right? Uh, The way we did it in the past was we had something called a commission model, which was we had a, I think it was a minimum $5 pay for every order that you you would deliver. It was minimum five bucks. And on top of that, I want to say it was 7.5% of the actual basket, actual cost of the order itself. So Lily, if you placed you know, a $100 order, for example, to keep things simple, this would be $5 plus $7.5, 7.5% of 100, which would be $12.5. So if I was a shopper and you were a customer, and if I took your order, I would get $12.5 and so on. So it was a revenue share model, like a rev share commission type of model, a markup type of model, if you will. Uh, the challenge that, that happened because of that was it created these things called unicorn orders is what we used to call it. And what unicorn orders were, were, were that there were these orders which were small and smaller in size, like a laptop, for example, right? Or a, you know, or a, or a cell phone or a mobile phone. They were very small in size, took very little effort to shop, but they would give you a disproportionately high payout because, you know, because the cost of that thing was very, very high. And so what happened was because in our marketplace at Shipped, because you have a choice of all these different offers that that a shopper has, uh, you know they they get to choose what they want to work on. Because they are independent contractors and not employees, I, it, it comes back to that that point. Is we give them more choice because we want them to maintain their independence and control their own work on the platform. For example, because of that, what we saw was there was a lot of cherry picking of these unicorn orders. So orders which where shoppers thought were was more work. There were more items in the order. They had to do a lot more work maybe they had to drive a little bit further, for example, were just not getting picked up. And the ones which were like less work and a bigger, you know, it looked like, uh, you know, bigger, bigger basket or more valuable, the average order value, the order value was higher. Shoppers would chase those orders. So what happened was that as a result of that, it started creating inequity in our platform, right? Because as a marketplace, we don't want, you know, we want families with kids, for example, to have the same access to, to this service, to be able to get what they want, to be able to get things delivered, versus you know a millennial who's trying to buy a cell phone, for example, right? So we wanted yeah. to create that equity of service on our platform. So that's where we kind of that was our role model, and so that was one of the reasons. Coming back to what you were saying, one of the reasons as to why we actually moved to dynamic pricing. I'm happy to go into how that worked.
0: Yeah. So so that was the kind of the main trigger for for moving to that dynamic pricing. Was there that, anything else right. that was there anything else that made you look at at that
2: route it was mainly that it was mainly that we wanted to create we so the the principle that we as a company the stand that we took and the principle that we went after was that we wanted to pay for the effort that was expended in doing something and these unicorn orders were disproportionately high pay the model the pricing model was disproportionately high pay for a very little amount of effort that did not feel fair That was one part, and the second part, as I as I alluded to before, was it was creating this inequity on the platform, where uh, you know families, for example, with kids who wanted just a bag of baby diapers, nobody was picking up their order because the price was price was very low. But we wanted them to be served, and we wanted our demand to be served equally, right? Not just chase the cell phones and the laptops, but also serve you know everybody else as well. You variations of this have been have been implemented in in other uh, platforms like uber and lyft for example they try to avoid showing you where the for the longest time they did try to avoid showing people where the pickup was before the actual pickup happened and the reason was because sorry where the drop-off was before the actual drop-off happened and and the reason was because if it was an underserved area they did not want to bias the driver from not taking somebody into that area before they picked somebody up because otherwise you know that area would get underserved and the job of the aggregator or the marketplace just like us was to do right by everybody everywhere essentially so that was the driving factor
0: yeah it's really nice to hear how you know setting those product principles has really helped kind of guide and shape the the strategy yes so once you'd made that decision to to switch to that different pricing model what what were your kind of first steps
2: yeah so so the way I'll, I'll i'll work let's work backwards from where we are now and uh, and and how did we sort of build the dynamic pricing model so we actually use we use machine learning now uh, it's a machine learning based model and the way it works is that again coming back to the uh, example i was giving you guys before is when you are a shopper in the app you see all these different orders that are available these orders have different Uh, attributes like how many items are you going to shop where is the store what's what is the time of the day when the customer wants the delivery that's one big factor right when you're when you are getting groceries for example there might be cold store items like milk and ice creams and you would as soon as you get the delivery you may want to put them away put it away essentially So, uh, so, you know, time slot mattered with, whether it was in peak time or or off peak time, for example, that, that made a difference and so on, right? Like there were a bunch of different factors. So what our machine learning algorithm does is it takes all of these different factors into account. And what it tries to do is it tries to now today, it tries to create a time estimate, estimate the time that it will take for somebody to fulfill that order. Right. So that is what I meant before when I said we wanted to pay not for unicorn orders. We wanted to pay on the principle that we would pay on what we think is the time to shop an order, um, and that's how we would, you know, that that's that's how we would basically set a time, set a rate for for different, you know, for for what what the pay rate would be for a certain uh, geography. We call it metro for a certain metro. What we wanted to pay, and then go from there. So that's what it is. We've moved from that static pricing model, that inflexible pricing model, into first into machine learning, and as machine learning, as we started growing, like as we, you know, as two years later, two years in, we started finding out. I'll, I'll skip over a little bit, but the way we started doing it is first, we had one version of the machine learning algorithm, and it was doing, you know, it was calculating these estimates, and then what we were doing was we were looking at whether our shoppers were taking the time that we estimate the way it was estimating, by the way, was looking at learning from shopper data and, uh, and, you know, trying to replicate what it was seeing a lot of machine learning. If you think about it is basically pattern matching, right? Even ChatGPT, GPT, which is out in the news has learned from, you know, all these, you know, all, all of these different data sets, it can even program today, but it has learned from, a, you know, billions of lines of code today, right? It's really just pattern matching and replicating what it has learned over time. So we were doing essentially the same thing. We were learning from, how long was it taking for shoppers to actually shop and then train our algorithms and, and come up with an estimate? And then what we saw was that there were bugs. You know, sometimes it would, oh, you know, uh, for for very small orders, we saw initially, we saw that it was actually overestimating for very small orders, but it, were, uh, it was underestimating for very large orders, meaning the time was smaller than, you know, what the actual people were taking to shop it and so on and so forth. So along the way, we had to kind of change the technology, you know, add different features is what we call it in machine learning to the to the algorithm itself and slowly and it is it is a sort of a long tail problem getting that it's it's called accuracy which is when you have the data that you're training with how accurately or how closely is are your predictions matching the data that you actually see it's called accuracy in machine learning so getting it to a very high level of accuracy is sort of a long tail problem it's you're always chasing that uh, you know the the holy grail if you will so that's that's generally how it is now the prices are dynamic or the the estimates are dynamic because they depend on all these different factors in fact i'll i'll say this one last thing the same order from the same store at a different time on a monday morning would see a different time estimate to the same order for example on a friday evening because guess what there's more foot traffic there's more people shopping on a friday evening right and so our when we look at real world data for exactly the same order we would actually see that the People, the our shoppers in the store took longer to shop. Therefore, the estimate for that time should actually be longer. So that's sort of how it works, if you, if, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, it sounds really, really fascinating. How do you go about um, validating, or, or you know, you mentioned the accuracy there. How do you test to make sure that you're you're accurate, or are you getting kind of uh feedback from your shoppers as they go to say yeah this was a good estimate or or no it wasn't
2: yeah so that's a good question uh it's difficult for shoppers to say whether something is a good estimate or not to be candid this is one of those things right uh i'll i'll use the uber example we were using before how can we see how can we if if there was a surge price on the rider side on the demand side how would any of us know whether this was a good price or not? Like, for example, in the example we use, I did not book, Randy did not book, you booked, right? But how do we know whether this was a good price or not? So instead of asking people, I think when you ask, a, this is this is the thing with surveys about pricing and about, you know, about pay generally. And this is kind of a, a running joke that we have internally within the company. We don't actually run surveys for pricing or pay explicit surveys because every other survey that we run, the number one pain point that we get is you don't pay high enough. Right, like it's just it's just that's just how it is, you know. By default, our number one pain point is that you don't pay high enough, and uh, you know that's it's not news because those that that kind of uh, sentiment is echoed around on social media. We have you know public forums and where our shoppers go and chat, and we have Facebook groups and things like that. And that is a common complaint that happens. And you know, in 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 full candidness, right? Times are hard, and inflation is at an all time high, and you know there is a lot of things that government is trying to do to control it as well. So it's not unfounded. The sentiment is not unfounded, but we don't do it. So what we do is we try not to try to ask people about what they say. We actually try to see what people do, right? So what we do is we try to see if we change a model. We, we do this through experiments, basically. Mm-hmm. If we are experimenting with a model in a in a in a marketplace, a new model, something changes. What does how does our audience react to it? I think I I gave you the Uber example, right? Only ten percent of the people, less than ten percent, book. That's just not, it's not something that the company wants to do, right? Because at that point, the company is actually not running a profitable business. They understand that. But the reason why they do it is because they want to maintain a high level of service quality for the people who want to continue to be in the marketplace, as well as get some more drivers into the marketplace as well. So it's the same idea. We look at how the market reacts. We look at, you know, uh, our shoppers still coming back to us. Is our retention high? Is their engagement high? Are they continuing to shop the same number of orders despite the price change and things like that? So that's sort of how it works.
1: Michelle, this has been great. We're running out of time now, so I'm going to ask one more question. It's uh, and it's, I'm sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot for this one. So, uh, combination of two things. It may be the same thing, but for somebody new who's trying or somebody who's trying to implement dynamic pricing for the first time. Is there any advice that you'd give them and is that the same as the the biggest learnings that you've gotten from this or is there something about getting started and then something for later?
2: That's a great question. I'll give you a quick anecdote from one of the talks that I gave on dynamic pricing last year around this time last year and somebody came I was I was talking on this on this subject of how to build dynamic pricing at a company and after the conversation somebody came to me and they said that during covid so a couple years out during COVID, they had a marketplace where they had dynamic pricing, their surge pricing, but they never quite increased the pricing to, they basically had a price cap. They never went beyond that price cap to a point where they actually burned a lot of their investor money and their company had to shut down. Right. And they were asking me, uh, should we have done this? Should we have not done this sort of after the fact, if you will? And my response to them was that you should have absolutely just gone for broke. Like you should have not had a cap. You should have just tried as high as the price would have taken you for two reasons. Number one, you cannot predict what your service is and how valuable that is. You should let the market predict for you. Don't try to read the market's mind. You can't do that. Let them let them do it for themselves. And number two, if Uber and Lyft can do it, and you know their search prices, for example, in, in COVID were egregiously high. Now you know, they are starting to come back down, but you know, it's a it's a it's a problem that you know is surfacing in the media as well if they can do it why wouldn't you like why would your marketplace not be able to survive high price changes? so i would say the three or four strategies that i mentioned before start you know with markups start with you know some of those strategies competitive pricing you know value-based pricing and then eventually as your technology scales you you get to it but second i would say do not be defensive uh, and one slightly off-topic example that i give to people is which i find extremely inspirational is Airbnb was able to put people into other people's homes, right? Like that, if you think about that idea in and of itself, it's absolutely crazy. So I think you should have bold, big, bold, ambitious ideas, which you think will change the world. Because if you try them, you will be surprised that sometimes they do. That's what I'd say.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. We really appreciate that. That's a great story and it's great inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Sounds great. This was a pleasure. Uh, if anybody wants to keep in touch with me, Please find me on LinkedIn. My handle is linkedin.com slash in slash VEE. That's V for Victoria, E-E. Very simple. Love to connect and love to answer any questions. Um, it's, v this was it's V for <laughs> Vishal. It's V for Vishal. VEE. So it was a pleasure being here. Thank you guys for having
1: me. And we'll have that link in the show notes as well. Thanks again. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. product experience is the first
1: and the
0: best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith.
1: And me, Randy Silver.
0: Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor.
1: Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band PAU. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank. Regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
0: If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.